Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, we have a great conversation with user experience pioneer Arnie Lund. He's the manager of GE's UX Industrial Innovation Lab, and he's spent decades in the field of human and computer interaction. We talked to Arnie about the challenges and opportunities of user experience design at an industrial scale and how great UX design puts people and problems first and technology at their service. You've had a ton of experience doing this. And the thing that kind of strikes me about your experiences is how you're typically involved with like the newest of the new, almost as new form factors come in. You're there to help with user experience issues around those. The area of how people use technology and how they can get the benefit of technology has always been the focus of the work that I've done over my career. And part of why I came here to GE Software was to do that for things that matter to people. And this is an incredible time because all of the things that many of us have been working on over our careers is all coming to fruition. So we sort of see all of these things that we saw early evidence of years and years ago at the beginning of our careers when it was in the labs are now coming out and available to everybody. And we can actually do those wonderful things with them that we anticipated and dreamed of back at the beginning. What are some of the technologies that you think are are the most influential to what you're trying to accomplish with user experience? Well, there's several key areas where technology is emerging around user experience that we're able to to take advantage of now. I I think the two that come together in a unique way that deliver on some of those experiences we dreamed of, one of them is cloud enables a seamlessness and a connection among all of these technologies that You know, we used to talk about ubiquitous computing. This is what gives us ubiquitous computing. This is what allows you to move from technology to technology, use combinations of technology together. Every place you go, you're surrounded by technology that you can take advantage of. So that's a key thing that people don't necessarily think of, but it's critical for the experiences that we we want to deliver. And then on the front end of that, those technologies is this explosion of the edge technologies that are coming in from the consumer side that we're taking advantage of and on the industrial side, new technologies that are being developed on the edge, smart devices that are being connected, sensors that are being connected. So that lets us build out the application. So that's a second key part of this. And then a third thing that overlays on both of those is what I think of as the the resurgence of AI. You know, there's kind of the AI winter there for a while and it's coming back in different forms and people are talking about it as cognitive computing and so on. But it comes with this tremendous amount of data that are available. And while in the consumer space, that's, uh, you know, everybody talks about it and thinks about it in terms of privacy, thinks about it in terms of advertising and what you can do for targeting. We think about it as how we can shape these experiences based on what people are doing, the context they're in, what they're trying to do. And so you can customize the experiences to help people accomplish their goals more effectively and efficiently in a way that really supports them as they're doing their day-to-day jobs. And so those three areas really make a magical set of experiences, I think, that we're able to offer. 
you make an interesting point about the AI winter and and sort of the resurgence of big data. Is that a coincidence that winter is over just as sort of big data acquisition is becoming uh, a possibility? I was thinking about it this morning uh, as I was getting ready for our conversation and looking at technologies that we were experimenting with, playing with, trying out, observing in the 90s that are now popular and are ubiquitous and, and everywhere, that everybody's got them, talking about them. People don't necessarily remember what was going on back then, but those things existed back then. The time wasn't quite right. And there was a dream of AI actually around that time that you were trying to duplicate the human mind, right? You were trying to create the new mind. And, and I remember there was lots of discussion about the, the big project in, in Japan you know, where they were going to make this giant AI program and it was going to, in essence, take over the world. Uh, and people were talking about that. What can you do with it? And, and that was out of that big dream, duplicating the human mind. But I think since then, what we've learned is it's not about duplicating the mind. It's about leveraging learning algorithms applied to this data and doing useful things with them. And when you scale that back, whether you're scaling it back to Watson or Siri or something, you know, they, they have different aspirations. They have aspirations of being uh, systems that can draw inferences, being systems that can see patterns, being systems that can provide support and help. And, and those are problems you can then solve with the state of computer science today and, and what we know about cognitive computing and how you can apply it to do th useful things. So the data enable these amazing things. And I think the maturity of the fields are at a point where we can do these amazing things. And then there's a market out there for applying those things to problems that matter to people every day. So all this data seems incredibly empowering, even to the end user. So a lot of the processing and the cognitive computing happens in the background. But when it when it comes to needing to empower the user with uh, all these sensors are picking up and all of these IoT devices across the spectrum, how do you address the challenge of being able to quickly identify what the benefit of the data is or what the what the story is behind the data? We try in, in my field, right? So we're, we're focusing on uh, human beings in context as they use these technologies. And we're trying to look beyond what people say they want in the moment to what they need longer term. Uh, so we look at patterns in what people are doing with what they've got and look at how things are changing to get a deep understanding of what those needs are and anticipate those needs, and then use those to define the use cases that we try and you know, build recommenders or build useful applications and, and so on around. So we begin all of that by starting with the human being. Again, you look over the history of advisors and applying big data predictively in a way that comes down and touches real human beings, it's one of those things where if you do it badly, if you if you just start at the technology and stay in the technology and it doesn't quite fit, then you get what people remember as clippy 
uh, and <laughs> other experiments like that. Would Google Glass uh, be in that oh. same category? And it could be, you know, I mean, with this sort of uncanny gulf, you know, that, that, that was there when used in the wrong places. If you come at it from the technology, you run the risk of not mapping into where the value is for real people. And what causes adoption is when people feel something is really delivering value to them and it fits with how they want to use it. And that's a hard job to try and design technology and shape technology to fit people to deliver value. So we begin with the, with the users. We begin with trying to understand them in context. That is the biggest challenge, isn't it? The balance of the people that want to build the next cool thing versus actually thinking about how the end user would benefit from what they've just built. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And is that the focus of your industrial innovation lab at GE? It is. I mean, we do both ends of that, you know, because partly as you bring in brilliant technologists and as you immerse yourself in users and their problems, you get great ideas and then you get excited about the ideas and about the technologies and, and you want to build them out and build new experiences and see what can be done. But then we bring in people and filter those technologies and shape those technologies based on how they react to it. And then the other side is we start with the human beings and we try and figure out, again, what are their needs? Uh, where are their opportunities to make a difference in their lives that they're going to appreciate and feel are valuable? And then use those as problems that we apply these emerging technologies to, which in turn drives innovation in the technology. So, you know, when we talk about connected experience labs, the 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 area that, that I'm the technology leader for, part of what we're focusing on is how people use these technologies to connect with other people, how they use them to connect to smart machines as these emerging smart machines and agents arise, connecting people to insights, and then transforming those connections by leveraging what we know about how they're interacting with them in order to bring more and more value over time. And that's kind of the charter that we're working on. How often are you surprised during this process? I'm always surprised and I'm always delighted. There's parts of it where you think, well, this is a, you know, a brilliant thing. Why don't people really want to use this? <laughs> there's that kind of a surprise. And then there's looking at how people appropriate technologies and use them in unexpected ways or are looking for things in, in new ways. And and how they use them in combinations that you might not have expected. And so you know, that, that's what makes the job fun and exciting. I'm sure you're working across a, a, a couple different industries. Is there a good example on kind of one of the more interesting developments in one of the industry focuses that you've got? The areas that we are really excited about right now are about bringing wearable technology and these capabilities of analytics and big data to people working in the field you know, out in the rail yards, in the factories, in the shops, on the drilling rigs, you know, wherever. Can you give an example of like one type of technology or, or visualization that's been particularly useful? Because my guess is that in those jobs, you're, you're focusing on the people that are busy actively doing something and can't necessarily check their smartphone real quick to see how the engine in front of them is doing or the oil rig. Exactly. I mean, so these are folks who, you know, when you listen to the press, you know, they're talking about the, the sort of deindustrialization of America, 
uh, in the outsourcing of factories and high paying jobs and how people uh, need to go back and, and reinvent themselves in school. And, and that's a that's a big barrier and it's a big challenge and it's kind of scary for our culture. But what these technologies do when you can bring them to people wherever they're at in these new areas and you design them for how they're actually doing their work, then you're bringing all of these resources to them to solve their problems, let them be more effective and more productive and let them do things that in essence are bringing more and more value to the companies that they work for and the customers they serve and, and, and the partners. So we've got a project where we're, uh, for example, looking at what goes on in the rail yard where you've got inspectors and the inspectors are inspecting engines or they're inspecting cars and they're trying to determine you know, where they need to do a repair. Is this part going to need to be worked on? And when you either looking at a train or whether you're looking at a jet engine or something like that, the decision to take something offline is a potentially a very expensive decision. And so you want people to make very good decisions about the optimal time to do that. Right now, you just think about what they have to do. They're out there alone. Maybe they're new to the job. They're seeing something for the first time. They've never seen it as a problem. They're not exactly sure what to do with it. They need to go find the expertise. They need to go get the manual, which is usually back at some trailer someplace, or they need to check in with a remote expert. They have to go find a computer or a phone and then do that check-in. They don't have necessarily other people around them that they can work with. And so they have to go get those collaborators and the experts might not even be reachable at that time, or the technical documentation might not be reachable. Or some of the things they're interacting with could be dangerous. We think about mining, we think about many of these, uh, you know, we're just in here in, in California, the longshoremen have been on strike. And part of when they're interviewed, they're talking about, this is a very dangerous job, handling big, expensive, physical, big steel stuff. Well, now you can put a wearable technology on them if it's designed appropriately, and they need to have a collaborator with them by their side, they can just, in essence, reach out over the internet and engage that collaborator who can see what they are seeing, who in the future will be able to kind of look over their shoulder and point out the things that need to be worked on and how they should interact with them. If they've encountered a problem for the very first time, you can now bring up an analytic that knows about that part, knows that this is a part that needs repair, or here's what you need to do to repair that. Here's how you go through the steps. You can do instant, just-in-time training of people in those environments. So it becomes very powerful. You're, in essence, enhancing all of their abilities. They can even, you know, if you think of something like HoloLens that's been talked about recently from Microsoft and the vision of that. When you look at the ads that they have out, they start out actually with industrial applications. They finish with consumer applications and what's going on in the home but they sort of motivate this technology of overlaying a virtual reality environment on a physical reality with what you need to do out in the real world as you're doing work. Well, that's what you're gonna be able to do. You're gonna be able to look at that engine or look at that power plant or look at that pipe and know it's hot, it's dangerous, you know, that you need to be careful, you need to bring something else in in order to work with it safely. 
all of that can be brought to bear when you when you bring the technology to the people out doing the work and touching the world. To me, that really sounds like the ultimate global collaboration. Even taking this to like the medical field or something that that involves care. I mean, could you envision like a a surgery that somehow imports through virtual reality experts around the world to do some very complicated, unique surgery? You can exactly. I mean, we've talked about within the healthcare areas, we work with our colleagues in that part of GE's business about uh, tele-ICU. We've worked with them on various field environments. Think about emerging countries. Think of emerging markets like India, for example. And you've got midwives out there who are looking after moms in or out, touching uh, communities all over India. Well, they're in a perfect place, first of all, to do triage. And so if you can bring them additional resources to help them to be more effective and know when to direct somebody to a larger medical center or uh, a clinic or whatever, first of all, you've really made a huge impact on a broad healthcare need across that community and that society. And then when you get into these smaller clinics, you can draw on the experts from the big hospitals and the medical centers, not just in India, but from other countries who have specialty areas that you can bring to bear right then and there, and in essence, have them look over the shoulder and, and, and help people. I mean, that's just very powerful when you think about the industrial internet and what this enables, with communication, with the additional tools that you can bring to bear, and then this wealth of global knowledge that we're accumulating that is now available to every person as they do their work. That's very exciting. Arnie, you're making me thrilled about the, the future. <laughs> sure. I already feel like I'm going to not live long enough. On the one side, you have the person there, and they're sort of being augmented. And then on the other hand, you have virtual reality as sort of the connector between those two people. And, and so in, in all kinds of fields, you're really empowering people on both sides of the equation, which is exactly. an amazing vision. And you can think about the fact that they're not there by themselves anymore. I mean, so we're now making the world smart. You know, we're adding robotics, we're adding self-driving cars, semi-autonomous uh, vehicles, adding smarts to planes, trains, and automobiles. We're, we're adding agents who are looking out and trying to be helpful and bring you things that they suspect you need or hope that you need at, at, at a time so they're there when you want to touch them. And so you're also enhancing the world in this way. And then with that knowledge of you and that context, you can shape those experiences to be optimized for you as you move through this world, as you move from the device to device, task to task, problem to problem, situation to situation. And one of the things that also brought me here was that vision of a world filled with technology where the technology is at your service and is supporting you, because then it means whether you have a physical disability or a momentary disability, as we all have, because you know we're in a noisy environment or a bright environment or we exercise too hard in the morning and so we have a mobility issue, you know the technology is making your life better. And you know that was one of the things that brought me into this field of imagining what these technologies can do to make people's lives better.
As you continue to introduce both the visualization and the virtual interaction and the technology that responds with certain movements and what you're trying to accomplish, do you see that workers are easily adapting to the path we're heading down with integrative technology in our workspace? Or do you find that some people are still having a bit of a challenge? They've used to doing it this way for the last 20 years, and they're not sure that they're comfortable with the pipe talking back to them or, or whatever. <laughs> well, I think that's a, it's an excellent point and it's part of the challenge. I mean, so the barriers aren't just imposing technology on people or sort of physical usability challenges of some of these things to take advantage of them and, and whatever job that you have. There are these kind of cultural things that fit within real companies and the real world. There was a book back in the 90s called The Fifth Discipline by Sanghi. And in there, one of the ideas that I always got excited about and have carried over the years is that whenever you make any change in any situation, I think while he was talking about organizational changes, it's also true when you introduce technology in an environment, there's a danger that organizational antibodies will form. <laughs> Right? that the system is used to doing things in one way. And when you introduce change, there can be resistance to that change and starts to seal off the change and make it hard to introduce. I mean, if you just practically speaking, these folks have, they know how to do their jobs. They know how to earn their salary. They know how to get a raise at the end of the year. They know what their, their job's pretty much gonna do in the morning. And they're worried because they hear on the press and news about, uh, these things potentially threatening them, their jobs and, and so on. And so it's not surprising. And, you know, even as consumers, new technology is introduced and it doesn't necessarily take off immediately. You have to demonstrate what the value is and they need to experience that value and realize that they're going to be able to achieve their goals more effectively if they believe that it's going to make their lives better, make their jobs better enable them to grow their careers, then they can be introduced. One of the challenges then is you don't just sort of dump this huge advance on technology. You've got to take smaller steps and you've got to bring people along with you. And I found that over and over again in my career that we may have a really huge vision, but if we went out all out and built the big thing, it wouldn't necessarily actually land. You need to take a smaller bit and introduce it in a way that the person could absorb it before they go to the next thing and grow it and grow it. So, you know, the modern smartphone didn't spring out of somebody's head fully formed. It came because there was a smarter phone and the phone did a little bit more and a little bit more. And then you got a calendar on it and then you got a PDA on it. And then a camera was inserted. And then you got to a place where you can suddenly put in all of these apps and people can pull in more apps and, and so on. And so a lot of these technologies are like that. You know, a concrete example is in, you know, we go out and work with some of the folks in factories. And one of the things we're interested in is how we can bring these technologies to legacy factories. Well, in, you know, a shop, say, where aviation parts are coming in, it's not uncommon to see a plywood board leaning against the wall and it has a whole bunch of parts nailed to it with nails. And when a new part comes in, the person's job is to compare that part to all of these example parts in different states of disrepair 
on this board and then make a judgment about whether it's going to be repaired or recycled or needs to be replaced or whatever. I mean, that's very mechanical, very physical. You know, what we need to do is start to figure out, okay, well, what could help them with that job? What is, what is going on in the downstream process? How can we incent them to do the right thing? How can we help them feel like, oh, they're going to be more efficient and not less efficient with the technology that we bring to them? And so working through that, you actually have to work with people and what their fears are, what are their motivations, what are the things that impact their job. You need to work a little bit with the job process itself and how they're incented and how they interact with their boss and, you know, the union environment that they're working in. And, you know, all of that takes sort of hand crafting in a way to get these technologies in some of these places. UX sounds more like just more than just making sure that the interface is effective and yeah. that your cognitive responses are what you want them to be. It sounds like you also have to go into the how to introduce this into the world, develop a decent process of a balance between your visualization and the technology that slowly is becoming smarter and smarter without being terribly disruptive. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's kind of how the term has gradually evolved and why we talk about user experience now is because it's the full experience. It's the end-to-end -end experience. It's about the social context and the physical context in which these things are introduced and not just about the widget in the design itself or the color or the function that you're providing. It's thinking about how the entire system works together and how it's experienced and what that means for what people are going to do with it. In your day-to-day -day process, I mean, you're very people-focused, and I think that's very admirable and, and I'm sure just smart business-wise in the end, but are you then constantly looking at GE's menu of technologies and kind of cross-referencing that to pain points that you know exist? How does an initiative start in your world? Do other people at GE come to you and say, look, I have this problem. Can you work with me on this? Yeah. I really have no view into that. There are probably two ways problems or projects emerge. One of them is exactly like you are suggesting. I mean, so businesses will come to us, teams within the businesses, they will be trying to solve a problem. They will be interested in what technologies, what new experiences might help them with that problem. And then what we will do is sort of scan the variety of technologies, scan the things that we're working on, scan some of the platforms that we've already built out, like the there's a Predix platform here with reusable software within it that we build on. Other things that we can draw on in order to provide solutions for the problems that they're bringing. On the other hand, out of these environments, we're often driven then to explore new technologies. And then we start to know because we've encountered these problems before and worked with the businesses, there are other places where we might be able to apply a new experience and bring benefit. You're both leveraging then and creating. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, uh, one example that's an interesting example is we were looking at how can we help utilities manage their outages that they have within their utility grids when storms come in, right? On the East Coast right now, you got storms, you got snow, you got cold, you've got freezing things, bringing down power lines and wiping out power. What can you do to, to prevent that? 
And one of the things we built out was an interface that we think of as a kind of forensic visualization interface that lets you look at the combination of past weather data, the history of tree growth within areas that comes from satellite data, and then applies analytics to that data to predict that you've had a history of outages in this area. In part, it's because the trees are large and old and they're gonna fall down with the weather that comes in. And we can then identify the conditions of the weather that are gonna cause those problems within that microclimate. We've identified a way to look at the geography, where is that likely to happen, set alarms, and then that means the utility can send out teams to do tree trimming ahead of time. If there is an outage, we can point out the likely place from a street side view of where a tree is likely to fall on a particular wire, for example. That's really cool. That seems like the ultimate way to leverage the big data and make it into something that's very tangible. This action needs to be taken as a result of, of, of everything that we've been pulling in. So along those same lines and Speaking of probably a lot of really cool toys that you have in your lab there, have you built like a room that's like the ultimate data visualization? Things move and you can combine data. She's basically asking, are you Tony Stark? Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't quite have the, the resources that Tony Stark has, uh, although we would aspire to have a room like that. Uh, our labs are very much like that. We started, in fact, with this project led us to how can you present this visualization in a way that it's useful within a utility work center, right? And so very large screens, ways for groups of people to collaboratively interact with the video information. And then we continue to move that forward and started to say, well, you know, what actually happens when we go out to both utility power plant operation centers, utility large operation centers, but also operation centers for railroads, or that are driving hospital uh, optimization as they monitor what throughput as patients come in and move through the hospital and the care process. They all have similar characteristics. They all have a situation overview environment. They have places for people to break out and try and solve problems. So then we started to say, well, how can we make it possible for people to, in essence, deconstruct a problem on the overhead visualization of what's going on, break it down into its pieces, divide it up into workstations where people are collaboratively working. What technologies can we bring there like touch screens, uh, touch tables, wearables, mobile technologies that let them collaborate and work together more effectively and then bring the results up to the overall plan so that you can optimize the response to whatever the individual situation is, and then drive a particular task with the relevant information out to somebody in the field. Well, what we've got then is a simulation of that operation center all the way out to the person with wearables in the field up in our lab, right? So we can bring people in, we can test them in the different roles, we can make sure that the technology is shaping itself appropriately to them. And then when we find new ways of how they interact with these technologies, then we can develop new interaction patterns that we can use in different domains and different application areas. What we're ultimately dreaming of. Does this relate with the GridIQ project that you guys have listed? 
It does. That was the project that we started with, and then it has evolved since then, and then different technologies have spun out of that. And we should explain for our listeners that GridIQ is for a project to assist with big data visualization of the kind you were talking about. Exactly. For particularly in the power area, although we've also been working with other GE partners about applying some of these technologies for water grids, smart water grids, and how you can manage them. Is that product doing both the visualization and the simulation? The product is starting to build out the platform that you would be able to add new analytics to for various needs that business partner utilities are interested in as they acquire GridIQ. So we started on the R&D side and figured out what are these core capabilities that are possible? What are the key technologies? And then we partnered with our product teams to build that into, in essence, the product that is going to evolve over time. And so some of that was scaling it back to what you could start with and support and then make something that's extensible. And so that's kind of the product side even as we on the R&D side were sort of pushing the limits in new ways to look at making these things smart, building in some cognitive computing to make them shape the analytics in order to support what's going on in those operation centers and, and so on. And how do you assess which data is the most relevant for a particular goal you're trying to achieve? Or is it sometimes data will surprise you, data streams you didn't think would be relevant are, or ones you thought would be relevant actually aren't? That's very insightful. In fact, that's one of the big things that we work on because, you know, it's one thing for data scientists to take a definition of a problem and a set of data and try and drive out a solution. But the real question is, what is the causal relationship that you want to pay attention to? And for very complex data, very large data sets, that isn't obvious. And that's one of the reasons why certainly at this point, having a human in the loop, having somebody with very powerful forensic visualization tools to explore that data is so critical. And then out of that, discovering the relationships that you can then fine tune the analytics around and the machine learning around in order to get a very powerful application. So again, sort of spinning out of, and where I was going partly with the story was spinning out of that grid IQ work, we continue to explore this notion of data visualization and a platform for doing that. We extended it to applying to big data sets coming in from airline data because you get a huge amount of data every time a jet flies overhead coming from every part of that plane, and especially the jet engines, you want to optimize fuel usage. You want to optimize it in conditions of hot weather, say, in the Middle East, or if it's going to be flying high and over the Himalayas and cold areas or whatever. So finding the exact things in an exact context that let you do repairs in the right way, manage fuel in the right way, requires interacting with that data, with very large volumes of the data to uncover the right relationships. Turns out that the kinds of things you're looking at there and the tools you would use to interact with that data are very similar to the tools you might use to look at the data from a group of patients on a floor within a hospital. To try and follow all of the strips, the cardiac strips, the breathing, the chemical uh, measurements that are coming from a patient, 
uh, other kinds of data that you might have with somebody with a particular condition and searching that, comparing it against past patients with similar conditions to know what's going to be important or not, and then looking across a group of patients that might have a set of conditions. It turns out from an interaction perspective, a forensics perspective, there's kind of similar interaction patterns in those tools. So we've been able to start to explore how can we take this thing that came from energy, we applied to aviation, and now we can think of it in a healthcare environment. That's incredibly exciting. So if I could use another movie metaphor, I feel like you're turning everyone into Neo. Like, Initially, when he first saw the Matrix, he couldn't like pull anything out of it, like meaning wise. And then suddenly he saw what it all meant. And you're sort of augmenting people with these abilities to take data streams from swarms of different devices and turn them into meaning that means that they can do their job better. They can help save lives. They can help lower fuel costs, whatever it is. Exactly. And you kind of think about it, say, because people think about the complexity of the world we live in and how fast it's rapidly becoming more complex and more powerful. Systems are getting bigger. Systems are getting more complex. The applications are getting more complex. People see and feel more and more technology around them. And in a way, it can feel overwhelming and it can feel like people are getting lost. But at the same time, we can flip that around and apply the same technology to help people to manage it, to make sense of it. We can lift them up from you know, the bits, you know, the ones and the zeros, and take them to the concepts, take them to the models about how the world works, enable them to manage those models more effectively, which gives them ways to deal with the world and deal with the problems and moves the technology to place not as a competitor, but as something that's doing the things we don't really want to do all that much and that are too overwhelming anyway. It raises up us up to, to make the decisions that we need to make to make a difference in people's lives. And taking that all the way to those people's lives. I wonder if consumers around the world are just going to think that, huh, everything's just working better. I'm not really sure how. But uh, suddenly everything yeah. is just easier. The trees aren't falling on my power lines as often. The hospitals somehow seems more efficient. Healthcare uh, is magically cheaper. Yes. Who knows? It is. <laughs> it is. I don't have to wait in the waiting room too long. I can just go right in. It's just right there for me. This has been an amazing conversation. I am ready to go out and just challenge the world and fix problems. <laughs> So, and I'm glad you're doing that job at GE. And I'm, I love the fact that everything you touch every day affects potentially millions of people. So that, that must feel great. It does. That's why I came here. That's what I do. And working with like such a cool innovation lab. <laughs> I'm like drooling right now because of the innovation lab. <laughs> We're looking at pictures on, <laughs> online as we, as we talk to you. So thank you so much for your time. We've learned so much and uh, exciting stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Arnie. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a shiny happy review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our email newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. 